is 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26, and then 3, 1 through 17. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. They will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Chapter 3. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins, and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith concerned, are rejected. They will not get very far because in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You know, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, all the things that happened to me in Antioch, all the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue what you have learned and what you have become convinced of because you know about, you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, it's long, but we're almost done with the pastoral letters. One more chapter to go. Today we'll cover one of the most uh, cited parts of the pastoral letters, the run on the authority of Scripture at the end of Second Timothy. And I don't know, there's like three or four places in the Christian canon when you really dig in on what we're supposed to think about Scripture and how we think about Scripture that people point out. We could you know, probably name them yourself. There's what? There's revelation don't add to or take from this book or bad things happen. There's the Word of God will endure forever, Isaiah and the Psalms. But, you know, one of the primary places where people go to kind of think about how we should think about scripture is this kind of portion right here in second timothy and we all kind of i shouldn't say most of us know because we a lot of us come from i don't know what's the easiest way of saying it we we came from uh an evangelical tradition that has its deep roots in the reformation ideas of what only faith and only scripture sola fide sola scriptura like at the core of the of the of the doctrine behind the Reformation, only faith when it comes to salvation, and only Scripture when it comes to thinking about doctrine and, and thinking about what we know, and that's the long and short of it. And I don't know, at least imagine for me and I bet for Lucia, there's a 
little Lutheran part deep in you that perks up when you hear the two solas listed together. But it's something that defines more broadly the way, you know, American evangelicals have thought about the Bible. And that's one of the things that um, is one of the hardest things to discuss openly and, and, and honestly, in my opinion, because there's always difficult risks for uh, how we think about interpreting Scripture. And one of the things that Resurrection Church has done fairly consistently is kind of taken a stand at whatever it is that we're supposed to do when we read Scripture, it's our most important desire that we read it as it wants to be read. Right? I mean, the, how, like if, 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 if there's a rhetorical form in it, if there's a story that is written into it, if there's a, you know, we want to pay close attention to it and to its context and to the words and I don't know, all the stuff in it. And the problem is folks throw a lot around so many words and concepts when it is time for us to talk about how we think about Scripture. So like inerrancy, literalism, capital T, the capital T text. And I think we get what those words are supposed to mean, but it's hard to figure out what most people mean by them when you try and put them into practice. So now, what is inerrancy supposed to mean? There's no, I guess, it, I guess ostensibly it's supposed to mean that, what, there's no error in the text, but what would an error in the text look like? What, how would you know an error when you saw it? Would it, would it be just that this text had gotten a basic fact wrong? What would, what would constitute an error? Would, would learning that all the animals weren't actually on the ark constitute an error that would make scripture not inerrant? What do we mean when we talk about the question of inerrancy or literalism? Like, this is the one that drives me crazy. It's, you know, most good definitions of how you think about scripture literally have this thing that they repeat over and over and over that just boggles my mind. It's, ready? Uh, We want to take the meaning of scripture literally unless it's clear that scripture wants us to take it metaphorically. Like, what? Like, (laughs) seriously? Like, you know, you start to put it to the test, like, I don't know, Psalms, God gathers Israel under his wing. He's got a chicken. I mean, I guess we're supposed to understand that to be metaphorical, but to understand that to be metaphorical is also to make a certain set of assumptions about who God is. Maybe God has wings. I, I I don't know. Like the difficulty is, and I'm not trying to make fun of folks who are, you know, invested in the idea of inerrancy or the idea of literalism. I'm invested in my kind of understanding of those things too, but... The, 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 the key thing is these small questions that we might ask about how to read scripture really are important for us because they lead to a bigger one. And the bigger question is something like, how is it that we protect the moral integrity of scripture and its authority for knowledge, right? That's the real question here. Like you may say it's about protecting its literal truth. You may say it's about protecting its inerrancy. For some people, the vision of that is that the scripture is like a history book and it has to get the facts of history right or it has to contain all truth or there's all kinds of things that people say about it but the big question here is something like when we look at and when we think about the scripture how is it that we read it and here's the crucial thing on the basis of what it tells us about how we ought to read it right like if we make up a doctrine of reading the bible that is from outside of the bible that creates some real problems for us reading the Bible as it intends us to read it. You know what I mean? Like if we look at it from a frame that is not derived from it, well, shoot, we're in some real trouble. 
and you know, I know, like the whole goal is we're supposed to let it stand on its own without interpretation to let it tell us instead of us say exactly what it means. But you know, the difficulty here is we'd need some cues from the Bible about how to read scripture, about what we should do with scripture, about how we should think about scripture. And that's why people pay such close attention to this r- little run in Second Timothy, because it is one of the places where the Bible makes the most explicit claim about how we ought to think about scripture. So I want to dig in on that and look at exactly what it says. And I'm going to do it. And I'm, you know, I've got to be very careful about what your interpretive choices are, are here. So one of my gripes with how a lot of people interpret scripture when you fall in the camp of being a person who is strongly in favor of literalism and strongly in favor of a vision of inerrancy that is defined by fact and strongly in favor of scripture standing on its own without the need for external interpretation and that kind of whole constellation of things that have become the evangelical consensus for how we think about scripture. One of my, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 things that we, we need to look at quite carefully when, when we think about that view of scriptural interpretation is we all learned scripture by basically memorizing teeny little chunks of it, right? How many people did sword drills when they were a kid? And the point of the sword drill was to find the one sentence where if you needed to root something in a doctrine, you could say, oh, this is the sentence that justifies it in the text. And that kind of taught us how to think about scriptural interpretation. Okay, so I want to just be clear that the choice I'm making here is I want to look at this little run in 2 Timothy and I want to look at the three major arguments that move through the narrative. Because I think those three major arguments or four major arguments help us understand what the point is, what the scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about how we think about scriptures. The first chunk I'd like to look at in some a little, sort of close is uh, 2.23 through 26. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Okay, so the starting point for all this, if we assume that there's one linear, continuous, I think elegantly crafted argument, is that, that when we start to think about the question of Scripture and how we frame Scripture, you know, we want people in the church to avoid foolish and stupid arguments. And why? Because they produce a lot of heat, but very little light. And when we quarrel, the kind of implication here is, is that, you know, we, it's not like we shouldn't fight about what things mean, not, not like we shouldn't discuss what things mean, but the key thing that the Scripture is telling us to avoid here is to avoid, what, what is it that we should be able to teach without resentment? And that's the frame for this whole section and a good bit of this letter. And one of the things that I've said most consistently in kind of doing an interpretation of the pastoral letters, and you know, by now it should perk your ears up a little bit, how frequently does this idea of the trap of the devil come up? It's come up almost every week. It comes up all the time, the trap of the devil. And what is the trap of the devil? The first time we talked about it, we talked about it like a bird and a snare. Remember that? Anybody remember that thing about the bird and the snare and the trap of the devil? What is the trap of the devil? The trap of the devil, at least as I interpret it, is laid out in the pastoral letters is this. It's a trap that relies on your own sense of self and your own sense of pride. And it uses your own sense of self and your own sense of pride, just like the bird is, oh, I'm hungry, I want to fulfill my needs or whatever. It's the thing that draws it into the snare. And so there's this thing that's repeatedly woven throughout the pastoral letters about We all know that the thing to be on guard about is the trap of the devil, those places where your own sense of self-certainty, your own sense of being right or being righteous, your own sense of 
having it all together in a way that other people don't, your own sense of self-justification, that's the trap. And anyone who's been in a real argument where there was something was really on the line has at least felt, I don't know, the, the, the kind of the outlines of the trap of the devil, if we're totally honest with yourself, haven't you? That you're arguing with someone and all of a sudden, of course, it's not just the argument in the abstract that matters, but it's also just kind of winning the argument is the thing that matters. And all of a sudden, it's not just about being right, although it is about being right. It's about being seen as right. It's about being understood to be right. It's about being understood to be more, I don't know, holy or insightful or any of those things. And what the scripture is kind of pointing out is that uh, you know, one of the things that happens in the context of a community where people care about each other and they argue about things is that it's awfully hard to start to separate the things that are about us from the things that are about the good of the community. So the primary thing when we think about the character of Scripture here is that we ought to avoid foolish and stupid arguments because those are the kinds of things that will draw us into the trap of the devil, They're the kinds of the things that will teach each one of us to kind of dig in our heels. And as an alternative, what is what does the scripture say? Instead of proof texting or, I don't know, demonstrating that you have the truth in a way that other people don't, opponents must be, and what does it say? Gently instructed, that's 25, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The beautiful thing about the vision of scripture that's about to be laid out here is that the things that we would like to highlight when we talk about inerrancy and when we talk about literalism and when we talk about the truth and the power of the text is I believe the core of it is that the word Christ is manifest in the word that is scripture and that it is inspired by, it is breathed by, and I'm going to talk for a while about that concept that I've talked about a couple months ago of being breathed into or animated by God. And the point is, what is at stake here is the idea that instead of us taking our own understanding of Scripture and imposing it on other people, that our community ought to be oriented in such a way that we let Scripture direct us and move us in the direction that what? That God wants to move us in. That's the point here, that God will grant them repentance, that God will lead them to a knowledge of the truth. In 26, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. The trap of the devil works when we think that the stakes in the conversation are our own credibility and not the beauty or transformative power of the word. But here's the crucial thing that ties the elements of our reading for today together. One of the beautiful things about the pastoral letters that I don't think people talk about enough is that there's kind of a psychology of the word here. And the psychology of the word here says something like, the point in how we think about scripture is not the truth of any individual claim or any individual doctrine, the point in how we think about Scripture is that we ought to present the Word in a way that makes its impact maximally effective, that demonstrates to us and to others who Jesus is, because the trap of the devil, the trap of the self, is strong, and the main thing that it's supposed to do is to keep people from encountering Jesus, the Word, behind the Word. So here's my second chunk. Chunk is a terribly inelegant word for... A portion of scripture that, that, that demonstrates something great, but, you know, apologies. Here's the second chunk. Chapter 3, 2 through 7. The last days, people will be lovers of themselves, of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
have nothing to do with such people. They are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the first time I read this, and without looking at the Greek, I'm just like, this is just Paul going ham, as we used to say back on the day, on all the people who would oppose the church. Like, he's just dropping this series of like, and they're bad because of this, and because of this, and because of this, and because of this, and he's like a little bit out of his head here. But the Greek is beautiful here, and it actually makes a beautiful argument. There's this run of, and we, I mentioned this a couple weeks back, and I'm not going to, you know, it, you don't have to apologize if you don't remember, because it's like a totally nerdy Greek point. But in this letter, there's this like tendency to list out all these qualities one in a row. Like you see it when you read the English in it too. It's like they're this and they're this and they're this and they're this. That's why I say it's like they're and another and another and another, you know? But they're, they're all uh, words that start with A. So in Greek, the A is the kind of particle for negation. And so the reason why the Greek is beautiful in it is if, if you hear it, it's like a pethes, a kerastoi, a storge, a spendoi, a spondos. And like it's about all these. It's not saying that those people, funnily enough, are, and that's why it translates a couple of them as ungrateful or unholy or unforgiven or slanderous or whatever, but it's, it's, it's kind of Paul going through this list of all the things that the people who are in the trap of the devil lack. They are apathes. They are not persuaded by the word. They are acharistoi. They are not graceful or giving. They are astorge. They do not have that kind of like brotherly, sisterly, family, parental type love for the people around them. But the most beautiful one is the one that's translated, I think, as, uh, where is it? Da, 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 da. Uh, the, the, uh, oh, they're translated as treacherous and rash. Okay, treacherous and rash. So the Greek word for this is, is, makes a gorgeous argument. It is aspondos. Okay, aspondos. So anybody, now, maybe, you know, little Greek trivia. Remember what happens in Socrates' trial, the very end. He's convicted of corrupting the youth of Athens. So anybody remember what he does? Uh, he asks for a feast for himself. He, does, he, does, he asks for a feast, and then the very last line is he says, all right, we're going to pour out a drink. Oh, yeah, for the god. For, the go- for Asclepios, the god of healing. Yeah. Okay, like, now, there was this Greek tradition, called, and it's called the Spondos. And the spondos was, if, if you or I were to have a fight, and like we really like, and I got mad at each other, it's, 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 you know, and it's not unlike what you might do with your friends anyway. You sit down and you say, okay, you know what, let's just forget about it. Maybe you were right, maybe I was, or maybe I was wrong, I'm sorry, or whatever we do, we make reconciliation. And this happened in wars too, on a broader level, but what you do is uh, you'd pour one out for your homies. So basically you take a drink, and you'd make the spondos was literally like a libation sacrifice and you would drink wine together and that would be the point of reconciliation. When, so when he's saying these people are rash and they won't negotiate, he's, calling, he's saying they're a spondos. They're not the kind of people who would sit down and share a drink with you to cover over the fight. But what else is he referring to there? Communion. He's referring to the practice of communion, to the Christian practice of spondos, to the Christian idea that takes a Greek idea and incorporates into it and makes it holy and makes it something that is suggested by Jesus that the way that we think about the core of our life together is when we drink wine together in order to have a sacrifice that makes us right with each other and makes us right with God. Because the point here is that those who are motivated by it and those who are moved by Jesus Christ, those that are not 
uh, caught up in the trap of the devil, those who are putting Jesus and the character of the church first, those who are really moving towards a vision of oneness within the context of the community, those are the people who are willing to come to the table for communion and make things right with each other. And those are the people that were unwilling to take any specific doctrinal fight and dig in their heels on it. And they would not say, well, hey, I'm not going to commune with you because you don't believe the same thing I believe about X, Y, or Z. Because for them, the spandos, especially the Christian version of it, was the idea that to commune together was the most primary thing that defined the character and the nature and the glory of the community. And the motive there, and you can see why, you know, I mean, like you can understand why people would not go to communion. You can understand the story you tell yourself. Like you'd say, hey, the other side in this fight is getting an important old doctrinal piece wrong. And why should we commune with them if they don't see the truth of the gospel? But the point of the letter here is something like your connection with the community and with the person of Christ and with the character of Christ and your thankfulness for the other members in the community and all the things that are bound up in it are far more powerful commitment points and are far more powerful evidence of the presence of Jesus in you than your disagreement over a specific point of doctrine. That's it. That's what it... And, 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 and that's why this thing in verse 5 just blows me away. The, there are people in the church, because this is talking about internal to the church, who will have the pattern or the form, the Greek word there is the morphe of godliness, of devotion or piety, but who deny the transformative power of it. Have you not met that person? The person whose commitment to their excellence in their faith, to demonstrating their piety, to demonstrating that they are conformed to every element of the doctrine and that they become so ossified in those commitments and so ossified in their understanding of it and so oriented towards telling other people what exactly they get wrong that those people cannot even commune with other members of the community and in doing so they take on the form of godliness but they deny its transformative power. What a devastating critique of a vision of our faith that says that people can become uh, imitators of the form but totally and completely miss the transformative character of Jesus Christ, especially when they encounter Scripture. And then look at verse 7. This is just like, gosh, seriously, it's crazy. Such people are great at. And verse 7 says, so someone read me what you have in your 7. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth is a good translation. The word for learning here is the Greek word manthano. And it, w- it refers to a specific kind of Greek knowledge called mathesis, which is what we get our word for mathematics from. It means something like factual knowledge. These people who take on the form of godliness will accumulate all this factual knowledge about Scripture, They'll pile it up over and over and over and over and they will get deeper at it and they will get deeper at it and they will know every jot and every tittle of everything that they say and they can root every argument they make in some element of scripture. But those people have committed to the form of godliness and the, the, the quest for learning at the exclusion of knowing the truth that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. I don't want to be like too condemning, but... This is literally a claim that there are folks in the context of the church who think that their mathematical, factual knowledge of Scripture is so powerful that it can become an impediment to them being moved by and animated by and breathed into by the movement of the Spirit in Scripture. 
And if you think about all the places where biblical literalism typically becomes a real question, they are almost always the places where someone says, yes, I am unwilling to accept this behavior because a literal interpretation of the Bible says X, Y, or Z. They are almost always places where the core question is, how do we minister to or encounter someone in love? And the question in interpreting scripture then is not, what does it mean for it to be inspired? Is it therefore literal and not, and is it therefore inerrant? Or I don't know, how do we, uh, we could twist the question up a little bit. How do we approach interpreting scripture if we want to avoid this mathematical error that would have us know the fact, but not the meaning, that would have us see the form, but not the transformative power of it. In verse 13, in, the, in, in, in chapter 3 of Timothy says that imposters and evildoers, it's talking about people inside the church, are going to dig in and make things go from bad to worse. But then look at 14. What does the good practice look like? What does the practice look like that is not about this mathematical error? As for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Because you know from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise for salvation. What? Through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-beathed and useful in te- for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Continue in what you have learned from the Scriptures. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, the Scriptures that this is talking about, if you're a literalist, the ones that would have been available from Timothy's birth not only don't include this letter, but they likely don't include any of the New Testament. The, 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 he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures for the most part, a fact that is lost on folks who cite this verse as proof of the authority of the whole. And in fact, not to get too high tech, but using it that way is not literal. If you think this refers to the whole Bible, guess what you're doing? You're making a metaphorical extension of a principle that covers over a literal deficit in fact. Ruh-roh! <laughs> so then what does it mean for us to understand all Scripture is God? I, dig- I digress on that. What does it mean for us to say that all Scripture is God-breathed? Theonumatos. Do you remember all that stuff around pneuma that we talked about when we talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? And the idea was we translated as spirit, but they would have thought about it in almost medical terms as breath. Literally, God breathed here means that scripture, I don't know, takes on a life of its own that animates the body of Christ, that it moves through it. And the test of it is not, is it literal or not literal? Is it an error or not an error? But is scripture transforming the church? Is it quickening and enlivening the body? Is it making it move instead of making people harden and lock into place? And that is the power of scripture. And look at every one of these categories. And for gosh sakes, because we've talked about each one of these words at some context, I think you all can see the amazing crescendo that this all comes to. What is it that scripture is supposed to do? It's supposed to provide breath to the body. Well, that's what it does when it's working. And the claim has very little to do with whether or not it's factually or literally true or without error, but instead that the power of scripture is that it moves things, that it makes things different, that it brings us to Christ. And what does it do? It teaches, it, I'm going to put this in quotation marks, rebukes, and you know why? It, quotation marks, corrects, and it trains and equips. Teaching, the word there is didascaline. We've talked about it before. It means to enter into a dialogue with someone where both parties put themselves on the line. And I've said a million times before, rebuking is not rebuking in the sense of saying, you've got that wrong. The word there is elegmon. It means convicting. It means providing proof. It means 
inviting someone into the process of a lenkos, not telling them that they're bad and wrong, but inviting them to a dialogue about what really matters. We had a whole sermon on that a couple weeks ago, and correcting sounds a lot like rebuking, but that's not a weird, tra- that's a weird translation true. It means something like to make something fitting or to straighten up, to align someone with the values of the kingdom. And training, what a great word too. Also a word we've talked about, the word there is paideia. Remember that one? To invite people into a whole sense of a life that is lived in, in direction towards and for the good. Every one of those functions of scripture is a, a function that happens in a relationship with someone else. Every one of those functions is a function of scripture that is measured by its ability to make us more like Jesus Christ. That is the measure of Scripture. You may believe it's literal or not literally true. You may believe it's inerrant or not inerrant. You can have a million different, Christians can have a million different opinions about how you put those things together. What this particular verse sustains is the idea that the most important measure of Scripture is that the word Jesus is present in the words, in the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, Scripture invites us to a community that where we die to ourselves, and it points more and more and more to the power of Jesus. And different ones of us will read and think about the Bible in different ways. Different ones of us will have different ways of understanding it. And I want to take the advice that we got fairly clearly and literally and directly here in Second, second Timothy. Let's not get into stupid arguments. Because in the end, Christ has called us to be transformed by the Word and His Word. And that is the measure of of the scripture that we have learned since we've been young. And that does not mean, it does not mean in any way that we minimize the power or the character of scripture. Instead, it means that we have to hold and cling to it with all our hearts and with all our might to allow it to shape and move and sharpen us. It means that our respect for the authority of scripture is all the more pressing than it was before because we are bound to hold each other to a vision of who Jesus is and the word that we proclaim. Amen. Questions or talks?